International Teacher Magazine presents Talking About the ITM Podcast with your host, Andy Hamden. Welcome to the ITM Podcast. Our topic today is the apparently unstoppable growth of international education. Despite everything that has happened in the last three years, new schools continue to open. According to ISC Research, there were 13,180 international schools around the world in July 2022, which was up from 12,373 in July 2021, a phenomenal rate of growth in that year between 2021 and 2022. What we're going to look at today is, is that still happening? Is this upward trend uh, continuing? What's the outlook for international education as we move into 2023? What impact has the war in Ukraine had on international education after the whole business of the two years of COVID? My guests today are two of the most respected observers and analysts of international schools over the last decade or so. Nalini Cook, who's head of global research at ISC Research, and Mansour Ahmed, executive director of Middle East and Africa at Colliers International. Like Nalini, he is based in Dubai, and he's also the head of development solutions in the area of real estate, education, healthcare, and PPP. Nalini and Mansour, welcome to the ITM podcast, talking about... Thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you. I'd just like to get down to that thing. What's your take on on what's been happening over the last three years? It's been so uh, disruptive. There's been so many things that have happened, negative things around the world. Nalini, let's start with you. What's been your take on on why things apparently seem to have continued to grow uh, in that period? Thanks, Andy. It's well, it's a, it's been an interesting phenomenon because I don't think it's been linear growth throughout that time, and it's certainly regionally dependent as well. Um, there were some hiccups, as I think everybody would have expected, um, particularly right at the height of COVID worldwide. Um, you know, twenty twenty times um, we did see schools closing around the world. We saw some quite harsh restrictions in, in, in some countries, which obviously impacted the way that schools could operate. But it also created lots of opportunities. We saw a lot of national school education provision that perhaps didn't meet the standards that parents wanted to see for remote education. And in many cases, international schools really excelled at putting in place remote or online programs. And they saw a flight to quality of uh, parents, especially local parents based in countries who simply were dissatisfied with what the alternative was. Equally, whilst there's been a little bit of a stagnation and indeed a contraction in certain markets and perhaps certain age phases between 2020 and 2022, we're certainly seeing things start to pick up in many parts of the world and that growth is continuing. Okay, so what, from your perspective, things were difficult? but things actually did begin to change and uh, certain areas opened up. I'm interested in what you said about age ranges. I'm going to come back to that because I think it's a very important point. And so from your perspective, would you agree with basically what Nalini has said? Yes, I completely agree with her and especially the comment about that it was not a linear growth. It was in different regions, different countries. It was different growth. I, I will, because I focus on Middle East and North Africa, so I'm going to focus on, uh, so in, in even in countries like um, in Middle East or North Africa, 
On the one hand, you have some very big countries like Egypt over, over 100 billion population, and uh, they were actually probably the first one who reopened their schools um, because, you know, a lot of um, online education and other things was not probably possible because um, mid-income and even low-income and high-income also, all different categories. Uh, in most of the cases, both parents are working, uh, so, so they can't be... Uh, kids cannot be at home and then we have um, countries which are um, um, GCC countries um, excluding um, uh, I'll come to Saudi but um, excluding uh, Saudi where uh, 70 80 90 percent are um, expats population a lot of western experts are there and uh, there is a demand for great demand for uh, you know uh, international schools in those countries and then Saudi, who, who has completely changed in the last couple of years <clears throat> and opening up and bringing in um, um, some mega project in the world. I mean, some of the most uh, mega project in the world, which has created job opportunities for a lot of, um, you know, new job opportunities for Saudis and for experts also. And um, so, so it was a mixed bag, I would say. Uh, but everything looked, uh, for, for, for what I would say is that things look brighter compared to what was last year or year before. And we see that um, they, the things will, unless something goes wrong, world economy collapse or something like that, things will be, um, uh, will be quite um, uh, brighter and, and um, more stable. And um, it won't be a lot of up and down, which used to be. So it was the um, stability and the uncertainty that characterized the last two or three years. But nevertheless, schools continue to open, and particularly last year. Was there a, a bit of a pent-up uh, demand or a pent-up uh, number of schools in the pipeline, Nalini, coming through that couldn't open during the first couple of years of COVID and then opened up last year? Do you think that happened? I think that definitely happened. And I think we're continuing to see those same effects this year, 2023, and we will do into the next academic year as well with people who have had schools in the pipeline, uh, particularly at the very early stages of planning, who have perhaps put a hold on due to the uncertainty of finances. And uh, as Mansour will uh, agree, I'm sure the finances have been strapped somewhat in certain countries in the GCC, if we talk about those countries where fees have been frozen for coming up to five years now. So th there's all kinds of knock-on effects that have uh, come from COVID, but those projects are still coming through and new ones are being planned. It's not just those that were pent up from before. We're now seeing new projects coming to the table as well. And it isn't just the number of schools, is it? It's the number of kids in the schools. You mentioned something that was, uh, I think, very relevant just there, that fees are being frozen. And that's pretty unusual in the international school market. They generally go up three, four, five, or even more percent in a year. So you think that has helped the, the people who were attending the international schools before, the families who sent their children to international schools before? I think it was hugely welcomed by parents. It's been obviously quite challenging for schools because they have had not only their regular running costs, and as we all know, the inflation around most parts of the globe at the moment is going up and becoming quite challenging to cover those costs but you know enrollment numbers have gone up in if we talk about pre-covid till now um it's about a five-year period 
we're looking at 14% increase in enrollment in international schools. So for the time being, those fee freezes have been um, offset by simply the increase in the number of pupils. For a lot of people, obviously, that's not across the board. Um, But we're in a highly regulated region in the Middle East, and that's not been true everywhere. Certainly, we saw in Europe and some parts of Asia, schools voluntarily froze their fees, understanding the challenges that parents may have. Now we're starting to see um, lots of people come back with up to 10% increases in in fees for this or next academic Ah, year. So it's going to be interesting to see how that proceeds. And what about that possible fee increase for next year, Mansour? Is that something you're picking up from where you are? I think if you look at uh, most of them, um, as Nelini pointed out, in quite a regulated economy, so we have a formula there where, you know, inflation is taking into consideration another. Uh, so maybe 10% in one year will not be there, but it probably will happen in two to three years' time, not two years, probably three years. Um, and um, so I think that's basically, yes, we do expect that. And a lot of time it is also, um, I think Nelini will uh, completely agree. Well, that lot of new schools which opened in last couple of years, they took a, a very high, um, what you call it, um, uh, you know, approvals. They take an approval of like $20,000, but then when they open their school, they basically say that we are giving a discount and all those things, and they basically start off with $15,000. And then they can remove those discounts where there's no, uh, basically, restrictions are there. You don't need to get approvals uh, uh, from, from authorities to remove the discount. So they will be able to, those schools who had a higher approved uh, tuition fees and they were basically started at a 10, 15, 20% discount, they will be in a position to do it. The one which is already, um, if they don't have that luxury, they will not go through the, uh, you know, uh, regulatory authorities and probably it will be 3% to 5% they, per annum they will be able to do it. But you both think that the the demand factor for an international education in English is still very much there. And of course, there are two very important aspects to that. One, of course, the traditional expatriate uh, demand and the growing uh, host national demand. And Nadine, you said that, in fact, COVID was a, a stimulus for some of those parents who might have been waiting to see to take the jump because they couldn't afford not to for their family. Absolutely. We heard uh, plenty of reports of, of people who lived in neighborhoods where um they suddenly saw their neighbours' children who were perhaps attending an international school having a full uh, online programme, including even things like extracurricular activities, um, tuition support, well-being support, pastoral care. That was incredibly important over the pandemic COVID years. And I think there were a lot of people who actually got to witness that because the education came into one's home. So you could actually see what was going on rather than it just being behind closed doors in a school building. And that caused an awful lot of interest, particularly in host nationals. Obviously, expatriates often have very little choice in terms of the type of school they can attend. It's often a home curriculum or it's out of the international schools that are there. But for those who are host nationals, they have alternatives. And certainly increasingly, um, we are finding that international schools are saying that their competitors are not just 
alternative international schools, perhaps offering different curricula. They're actually the, the local private schools as well. And of course, I mean, the, the, the stat that sticks in my mind is 80% of the students in international schools are now post-national, which is a huge difference to 20 years ago. Let's just move the conversation on to another area. The other big driver of international growth uh, was China. And a number of other factors have affected that region as well. Perhaps we can just stay with you, Nalini, for a minute or two and say, what do you observe happening now in China? I mean, obviously, they've had this really strict lockdown, which has, must have been terrifically difficult for schools. Do you see a waning of interest in opening new schools in China? Or, or, or what do you see the position being as they come out of this incredible lockdown? Yeah, it's an interesting one, China. Certainly, um, interest had started waning pre-pandemic um, due to the uh, number of regulations that were being brought in to, uh, I suppose, depending on the side of the fence that you're on, but to restrict the operations of international schools, um, certainly in mainland China. Um, so people were already being a little bit cautious. The flip side to that coin, though, is, um, you know, I, ISC has more than 50 future schools um, on record for for China, and and absolutely no doubt there will be more because we we only record those that we can actually find proof of um, them being in the pipeline. So we're definitely not getting as many inquiries about China. We know that people are struggling for recruitment um, of teachers there because of things like extended border closures and COVID policies. But equally, we know that the demand is still there. So it's it's how you're how you're able to address that. Um, the regulations are perhaps a little bit stricter, but um, people are finding ways in which to operate within those increased uh, restrictions. So it's certainly not off the cards, but it's also not quite the um, explosion of growth that we were seeing perhaps five or ten years ago. And of course, some Chinese parents are actually going overseas, aren't they, and buying property. Have you seen that, Mansoor, in, in the Middle East? Uh, Chinese families arriving and buying property there? Yeah, I think it's not just the Chinese families who's arriving as an investor and buying properties. Uh, we also, a lot of Chinese companies has opened their uh, regional offices in the Middle East, especially in Dubai. Uh, especially Dubai, they are using as a Ch Chinese, they're doing a lot of business in Africa. So they're doing uh, using uh, basically Dubai as a as a you know regional hub from where they can do the business in Africa, and they would like to place um, you know uh, uh, their families in in uh, in so so it's not just um, investor it's a there's a job creation there is Chinese companies who are opening their offices and bringing uh, the families in in here. Chinese are also open to now take jobs in in different uh, you know uh, uh, different places. We have in Collier, we had hired two Chinese girls who are basically you know uh, they they were just studying in and they came and the family is not here. They were studying here and then they joined Collier basically. So I think it is um, uh, that uh, thing is there that it's not just the China. Also, uh, you mentioned Ukraine and uh, Russian uh, things. So there is a lot of um, uh, lot of families are coming from Russia, Ukraine, and there is a lot of families are um, the moving. Uh, original, I would say, Russians who are in 
well uh, based in in UK and other, but um, they they are they find it maybe better to move in this part of the world. So I think that's there with the so, uh, and there's a lot of um, there's some tax loss change in India, uh, which has a lot of impact on properties and other, and people start moving here. Um, same thing happened with Pakistan, political uncertainty and other. And lo- so I, it's Lebanon, which happened a year, year and a half back. So there is a lot of what we have seen is that which is benefiting UAE and especially Dubai. But on the other hand, um, 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 Saudi, especially Riyadh, uh, the way they are basically the, 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 the project I, I think out of top 10 projects in the world, seven are in Saudi probably, uh, the, the mega projects, which is just creating jobs and a lot of expats coming. And also, I think we need to see that uh, we need to see as uh, that Saudi, a lot of Saudis because their, um, you know, historical link with US, uh, with Saudi Aramco and, you know, uh, um, all the, so the, most of them are studied higher education in U.S. I mean, at one point in time before uh, 1718, 120 to 140,000 Saudis were going outside the country for, for every year, full scholarship. So when they come back, now we have, when we meet them, these are the people who educated outside for last 10, 15 years. They don't want to send their kids to local schools. They want to send their kids to international schools. So most of the demand in Saudi is actually coming from um, from um, Saudis, who, on the one hand, educated in 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 uh, Europe or USA or other places, or they have realized Saudis who have educated in Saudi, but they have realized that with the way economy is growing and expanding, they have to give not uh, uh, nothing to you know take away from the local schools. But they need to basically make sure that their kids goes to international schools um, because they need to fight for a job which will be, you know, experts will be also coming and everybody. So I think we see uh, a continuing trend in Saudi and perhaps in Egypt and in the subcontinent of more host nationals being interested. Uh, And that sort of follows on from the developments of the last 10 years where the expatriate population was tiny compared to the host national population in international schools. That's one thing. And I think that seems to be, from what you're saying, that's going to continue in certain areas. But I think both of you are saying things that seem to suggest to me that we might be in for a new wave of expatriate demand as well, because the demographics of the expatriate population seeking international education is changing, I think, quite profoundly. Nalini, is that what you're seeing? Yeah, we're certainly seeing, um, particularly if we talk about the Middle East, which obviously Mansoor and I are most familiar with, fewer Western expats as a percentage compared to now expats from Asia, from Southeast Asia, um, etc., particularly in professional jobs. There certainly was a time 20 years ago where at certain management levels, it was almost entirely Western expatriates uh, dominating the market. And that's really becoming much more open now. It's becoming much more international. But I think globally, we're also seeing a trend where we have things like we've touched on the uh, the war in Ukraine. We've had COVID, extreme COVID restrictions in places like China. Um, 
Brexit, perhaps if we look at the UK and, and Europe, um, inflation around most of the world, all of these things are creating, I think, a lot of um, economic migrants of, you know, well-educated people with a wealth of experience who are simply seeking a change from what the past few years have been. I think at the beginning of COVID, we saw a little bit of a a contraction into one's own perhaps home country space, the safety of that, the, the closeness to to family and friends. And that seems to be reversing now with people perhaps being inspired by a slightly greater sense of adventure, the possibility of something that's unknown on the horizon, particularly if things are perhaps a little bit tough wherever your home country is. And are they taking the initiative themselves to to pay for themselves to relocate into different places? Or are they getting jobs like the traditional expat of 30 years ago to take them into places? Or is it a mixture of both? What do you think? I'd say it's both. Um, that, that, that traditional pattern still exists and I doubt that will ever go away, uh, completely. But we're seeing an increased number of digital nomads. Um, there's something like three and a half million digital nomads in the world at the moment, which is really a small country in terms of a population who are effectively making that decision for themselves. They're, they're upping sticks and they're relocating to somewhere that they would like to experience life. Now, if you've got school, ch- school aged children, a big factor in making that decision as to where you go will be what international schooling is available. Absolutely. And what kind of regulations these digital nomads are going to be subjected to? We've seen the the, the sort of so-called silver-haired programs for places like Malaysia to attract retirees. But now we're getting very friendly uh, visa regulations coming in in a variety of different places to attract these digital nomads. What about the Middle East, Mansoor? Are you seeing countries trying to attract these people? Yeah, I think one of the key things is that before that, um, at you know, age of 60, you retire and you go back home. And uh, then, you know, the age retirement age goes up 65 and then a lot of uh, jobs and other you still keep on working till you can keep on working. The other thing is visas. I mean, normally the visas were linked to your job or your, your business. And once the job or business is gone, you are basically have to leave in 60 days or 30 days, depending upon whatever was the rules. But now there's all this golden visa and, and you know, all this 10-year visa and other with automatic renewal with no age restriction. And, um, you know, all those sort of things is making uh, very attractive for, for uh, basically, um, uh, a, you know, international community to move. And what sort of countries are doing this that, that you've seen are really pushing this agenda? So, I mean, obviously it started by UAE, then followed by uh, Saudis doing it. Oman is now really going after. Uh, and Oman is actually, there is because there is not, they are on the one hand trying to expand their economy and other thing, but because, uh, you know, it's such a nice place. So they are looking at the, you know, retirement homes and second homes and all those sort of things. Then Qatar, so then Bahrain, everybody is basically, you know, uh, focusing on years. So the Middle East is doing it. And who in, in, in Asia, in East Asia, do you see pushing this agenda? Thailand is definitely doing similar. Um, yeah, we, we're seeing um, Thai visas. It's becoming much easier to buy property and things like that in Thailand. Malaysia, um, Bali and Indonesia has um, some uh, accommodations for this. We're also seeing similar in Europe. So despite the uh, the regulations brought about by Brexit, 
Brits who are that way inclined can now um, get a digital nomad visa for Spain, for example, and there are a number of other um, European countries, as well as areas like um, Latin America, perhaps some of the Caribbean islands. Um, I couldn't tell you which off the top of my head, but I know that some are doing those because uh, that pops up every now and again, and everybody's very interested. Looking at the weather out of my window here, you're painting a <laughs> yes. yeah. very attractive uh, 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 situation. Finally, just to wrap up, we've, we've mainly looked at the demand side for international education, but I think we should just spend five minutes talking about the supply side of, of international education. Who are building new schools? Are, are they the big companies, the big players, or do you still see the, uh, the well-motivated individuals who want to do something for their country or for a region? What do you see, Mansoor? And then we'll wrap up with you, Nalini. Yes, I think in the supply side, obviously, uh, one of the factors is um, that high network individual and, and, and uh, you know, that's traditionally used to happen. And uh, big families, they went to some school in UK and they want to bring the, uh, you know, a branch here and other. And then we have seen it that uh, what we have seen is that now there are private equity funds who are basically, they think that education is very, uh, you know, sort of a stable and, and provide you good EBITDA margins and other. And then you can go, uh, we are going in the region, we are maturing that you will see that there will be then IPOs and other thing will happen. Already healthcare has started in last couple of years and we think that the, uh, it will happen in education also. And lately, so then, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the groups like um, Cognita, Inspired, another, the big, big, uh, you know, investor as well as operator, you can say, they, they realize that there is a big market in this part of the world. And they have, they came here and they basically acquire either a school or now they start establishing new school. So it's a mixed bag of high network individuals, uh, family offices, which we call it here, which could be royal family and other big, uh, you know, families, and then private equity fund. There are a number of funds which are dedicated for health and education, and uh, then uh, you know the, the cognitas and and inspired and other, and um, I mean any smaller one also. We work um, the, with Edureach. Adurich is from nowhere. Um, in last couple of years, they have three school in China, in Doha, two school open in uh, Muscat, two more in. So there are individuals also who have you know big dreams and uh, they are putting uh, efforts to establish a school there. Yeah, and Alini, would you echo that on, on the supply side? Yes, um, I absolutely 100% in agreement. It's, it's still very much a mixed bag. Um, a, a real, um, we still see individuals, family offices, private equity going towards education. But I think where we've seen the real increase compared to past years is definitely in the, uh, perhaps UK or US, uh, UK, um, independent school brands who are opening a branch. Uh, overseas, um, I think it was 115% growth over the last five years in those types of schools. And then there was over 60% growth in school groups. So as Mansour said, groups like Inspired, like Nord Anglia, um, etc., who are going in. And interestingly, that uh, is often um, through the acquisition of these proprietor-led uh, international schools. 
and they're acquiring all sorts of other things, aren't they? They're online education, Absolutely. for example, inspired are doing that sort of thing. And some school groups, which started out as branded only, have actually transformed themselves, haven't they, into large companies? And the brand is part of it, just part of it. I think of Education in Motion in Singapore, for example. They are an incredible uh, sort of story to follow and to see what's happened in association with, with Dulwich and now other groups of schools. Nanini and Mansour, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. You have not disappointed. Your insight is there. It's fantastic to hear you again. Uh, lovely to speak. And I look forward to ha perhaps meeting you again in person in, in the next year or so as things continue to open up. Thank you so much for being part of the ITM podcast. This time, ITM was talking about the growth of international education and the number of international schools into 2023. Nalini Mansour, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking About the ITM Podcast. Visit conciliumeducation.com. Copyright 2023. Produced by Jay Lasky Voices. Jay Lasky Voices dot com.